At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on December 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and joining us today is former Burbank Police Lieutenant Eric Rossoff, who also runs the Campus Safety Group. Welcome back to the program, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure to have some time to chat with you, Anna. Oh, absolutely. I'm really happy that you're here. We have some as usual, some very disturbing, insane cases. Um, but before we get to them, because it's the holidays, I don't know if you've all noticed, but I decorated for you. <laughs> um, we wanted to talk about our own personal safety, because I think everyone is aware right now, Eric, that crime across the country is up. And we are all, as individuals, because of everything that's going on, probably feeling even more vulnerable than ever so are there some things that we should consider in the next few weeks as we go on about our business trying as best as possible to have a normal life? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, there's cycles to um, our crime, uh, uh, rises in crime. And definitely a bad economy it would be one of those factors that uh, then we see a tremendous rise in property crimes and thefts and such. And as people get more anxious about whatever situations might uh coming up, then you see a rise or an uptick in uh, crimes against people. And we're in, obviously, you know, uh, one, if not going to be the most uh, dramatic times in our, in our life. And there is a horrible economy and there's an incredible amount of stress. That said, um, the standard tenets of safety remain kind of the same. You know, the first is just a situational awareness. Be aware of your surroundings at every time. Try to eliminate places uh, that, uh, you know, might be uh, expose you to being a target of some uh, uh, places or circumstances that may expose you to be a target of, of crime. Um, also, uh, because the economy has kind of changed, the way we're not necessarily going out shopping as much as things are being delivered to us pretty frequently. And we found, uh, I've read some articles recently where law enforcement is, you know, recommending, uh, highly recommending that neighbors form, you know, again, just a, uh, uh, within four or five houses around each other, a neighborhood watch, and maybe some type of uh, product delivery service drop-off place. You know, that if, if there's a retired person like me that's home and other people do have to go to work, maybe I can accumulate or I'll watch out for people getting packages and I'll secure those packages for them until they get home. You know, because there's a, a lot of that happening right now. People stealing things off of porches. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm I've got one of those Ring video doorbells, and and it's got a community to it. I can't tell you how many notices I keep getting every day at all hours of the day about something being stolen from someone's house. And I have to admit, even I've made a change as well. You know, now you're not allowed to bring your own grocery bag into the supermarket, right? Because of COVID. So, uh, and I don't need that many 
extra bag. So I keep saying to them, oh, just put it back in the cart and I will load it in my trunk into my bags, which I'd been doing for months. I have to tell you, Eric, in the last few weeks, I've stopped doing that. The other day, I was in a dark garage and all of a sudden I realized, for God's sakes, I'm standing here for like five to 10 minutes fiddling with my trunk, completely focused on moving all my groceries, the cold here, the hot there. And I thought, I'm just a sitting duck right now. So so I've made that kind of a change. I'm just that much more aware. And I'm sorry to say that I have to make those kinds of changes. Well, and I'm going to ask you, don't be sorry to say that. The, uh, that's a public service announcement that you just provided for folks is you recognized what you were doing and you recognized that under these circumstances, that could be dangerous. And you made an adjustment. Um, that's exactly what I'm talking about related to any sort of situational awareness, that as long as you fixed it, you know, now we're moving forward. But just the fact that you commented on it now, I can't imagine the, you know, how many viewers right now are thinking to myself, oh boy, I do that exact same thing. I should stop doing that. So it's a public service announcement. You did well right there. <laughs> thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. As a crime reporter, I try to be vigilant. Um, well, thank you for that advice. We really appreciate it. Let's get straight into our cases today. We have you know, oh, it's just so, they're so unbelievable. We are looking into the following. A woman who moved to Phoenix, Arizona for a fresh start at life. Can't we all really appreciate where she would have been in, you know, the space that she was holding to say, I'm moving and I'm going to make a change. And what happens? She meets a guy and she's found murdered and dismembered near the bottom of a river. Our first case, though, however, is a children's hospital nurse who was kidnapped and then held by her captor for five days and then transported across state lines. She was found alive, but in those five days, Eric, her kidnapper is accused of killing her mother while she was along on this horrible escapade, and he was eventually killed in a shootout with the FBI. That is how the nurse was freed. It's it's like a movie. You can't even believe that this actually happened. Authorities knew that they were dealing with a really dangerous situation when the nurse was reported missing on Thanksgiving. And also on Thanksgiving, her mother was found dead, discovered by a separate set of police. So at this point, you have two police departments saying, dear Lord, we have an abduction. We have the murder. We have the murder of her mother. So something very seriously is going on. And, and over the course of those five days, the police knew that these two crimes were connected, but they didn't know how. And of course, they couldn't completely rule out that somehow maybe the nurse was involved in all of this, right? It's a holiday. It's a murder. It's family. So let's take a look at the details of the crime. Eric, I do want to ask you before we go into the details, when you have something like this, you have two separate crimes occurring within a family, are are you thinking you know, got a, the universe of finding who may be responsible is really tiny because they they clearly have to be related. Yeah, uh, generally speaking going into it, you would think the the solvability factor of this um is high that um when you know, at first we have the abduction like you talked about. And uh, at first glance, that was a missing person. It was relatively a low priority. Someone's reporting that someone's not generally where they would normally be. And as you investigate that, there may be bits and pieces that you start to see that would be, um, okay, well, now it's a little bit more suspicious. Is there, does the scene where she was last uh, known to be, uh, is, does it look like there's signs of a struggle or whatever? But relatively quickly, you fold in, right, that if I'm investigating this missing person, one of the things that I'm going to do is reach out to family members, right? And now all of a sudden, the, the first family member that you would reach out to would be mom, and we're finding out in another community, the mother's been murdered. And now we've we've joined these two things together that there's no chance that these are coincident, coincidental, uh, that there's some type of a nexus between it, and either the missing person is in huge peril or the missing person is complicit in a murder. And we're now work. we don't know that, that answer, but we're working from that foundation. Exactly. And those five days were incredibly long, both for the victim of this abduction and, and presumably she witnessed the murder of her mother. 
plus what police were trying to get to. Because obviously, if you have one person who's dead, there's likely the possibility of either one more being dead or that someone else is in peril. So here are the details of the crime. 45-year-old Nicole Bernowski of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, was last seen on Wednesday, November 25th at 6.35 p.m. This is the day before Thanksgiving. Now, in addition to being a hospital nurse, she also worked as a nurse for the Akron School District. She was reported missing by her ex-husband the next day on Thanksgiving. Also, on Thanksgiving, about two hours south of where Nicole disappeared, her home, her mother, 69-year-old Norma Matko, is found shot to death in her home in Barnesville, Ohio. Okay? Now, if that is not horrific enough, reportedly her killer, the killer of the mother, carved some kind of symbol or word on her back. And he raped this elderly woman. So already you have not just a horrific and violent crime. Now this is, I mean, this is like Manson type crazy. I mean, to carve something on someone's back? Yeah, when you start at a baseline of homicide, you know, you're about as bad as you can be. And you imagine the degrees then of not just a homicide, but the type of homicide and the psychosis that must be going on related to as you're investigating that crime scene, who you're looking for and the type of person that you're looking for. Right. Because this is not like, oh, I just snapped. This is not, oh, um, a crime of opportunity. I came in and I I had to steal something, right? It's not... There's something else going on here. This takes it to a whole other level. And it's already horrific to to begin with, without question. So apparently it didn't take very long for police to kind of come up with a potential suspect, even though they did not release this to the public. The FBI quickly became involved because they believe that 47-year-old James Hawley, also known as Ahmad David, was the one to kidnap Nicole. And here's the reason, because... Nicole and James had dated, apparently, this is according to the Belmont County Sheriff. He's the one who said they had some type of relationship, and then the relationship ended. He didn't say anything more than that at a news conference, but I think we can interpret that to be, you know, some form of dating. Whether it was a short relationship, just one date, we don't know the details of it. So the sheriff made it clear that they were no longer together. To make this even a uh, more of a small town tragedy, if you will, the same sheriff is the neighbor to Nicole's mother who was murdered. And he became emotional at a news conference once everything was solved and Nicole was rescued. Here's a clip of that. This is a, a very uh, important day for us. Uh, Excuse me for a minute because I knew him personally. Uh, we had a murder last Thursday, uh, Thanksgiving Day, that we was informed. Just wanted to say that uh, uh, it was one of our local residents, uh, Norman Macko, who I think was age 69, that was murdered. These were good people, are good people, and we li live beside we're neighbors. So it does... Come on. Obviously, it's very hard when you know the victim of a crime. And, and Eric, I understand you know exactly how the sheriff was feeling. Yeah, listen, I, I'm a lifelong resident of Burbank. I was born here, raised here. I'm raising my family, uh, you know. And as a police officer here for 31 years, we would, unfortunately, from time to time, you would have to um, respond to someone that you knew in very bad circumstances. As a matter of fact, um, I feel for that sheriff because I, I, in my own personal uh, uh, law enforcement experience, I remember the first time that I ever found myself like spontaneously started to cry on the job. Um, there was a death investigation and it wasn't a homicide or anything, just a simple death investigation. And when I got to the, uh, to the location, um, it was my third grade teacher who, who I just adored. And I remember I 
talk to people and I, uh, I took the information and I uh, went out to my car and I couldn't drive the car. I just sat there for a little bit and it just brought back this wave of emotion about this wonderful person in my life who had just passed away. So um, there's something about, uh, you know, the job itself, there's a range of emotions, but especially when you're that close to the person who has uh, um, had, you know, has passed away, has been murdered or anything, there's another level that you get to. Absolutely, because you're all human. We are all human. And I think sometimes we forget that. And, and professionalism, you know, doesn't mean you're not allowed to be human, right? Yeah, there's a, a perception, I think, of the robot police officer, you know, and I think that's the last thing in the world that any of us really want. You want uh, someone who has compassion and empathy and also, you know, a passion for the job, no doubt. But uh, I 100% can feel where that sheriff was coming from. Yeah, really. It just, you can really sense what a small town it is. And presumably he would have known some of Nicole, right? He, 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 it's just terribly sad. Well, uh, this is not the end of the story, however. So here's what we believe happened. Police say that Holly, right, kidnapped Nicole in Cuyahoga Falls, and then he drove her to her mother's house and around 3 a.m. on Thanksgiving killed the mother. Then Holly took the mother's car, took Nicole with him, and drove to Cleveland. That car was later found abandoned and set on fire. It's believed then that Holly took Nicole to Louisiana in yet a different vehicle. Okay, so now he's switching vehicles. He's He's constantly moving, right? He's on the move without question. Then on November 27th, that's Friday, right after Thanksgiving, Holly sent this very ominous message to his 16-year-old via Facebook. Here's the message according to police. Quote, you get it twisted. I ain't running. I am hunting. 400 years worth of killing is my soul quiet before you wake up and see me or maybe your words will send me to your brother's house okay if you're 16 you're like what the heck is going on with dad right this doesn't sound right then holly posts some photos on social media some photos of himself with two nine millimeter pistols on thanksgiving and apparently those photos were taken in nicole's apartment placing him in Nicole's apartment. So it's possible that's where she was abducted. The FBI said that the photo was posted just hours before Holly tied up and raped and murdered Nicole's 69-year-old mother in Belmont County. Okay, so you can see how things are just escalating, right? And then he carved something on, on the woman's back. Authorities say that Hawley shared numerous photos of himself with firearms on social media. It's like everything's escalating right now. Everything's escalating. The violence, uh, the messaging, the photos. And he posted, quote, that he wants to kill some cops, okay? And presumably they already suspect that he has killed mom and he has Nicole. Well, this is what I find fascinating. So... Federal charges are immediately issued for Hawley's arrest. He was charged with federal crimes, including threatening through interstate communications, being a felon in possession of firearms. Here's what's interesting. So they they issue the arrest warrant so the cops can go after him and begin the process of tracing his phone and trying to locate him. And remember... You know, in the back of their heads, they think Nicole, that he's holding Nicole, but the purpose, the purpose, the official purpose of this warrant is to be able to track him. It, it, was that their roundabout way of trying to save Nicole? Yeah, and it's actually not uh, roundabout. It's, it would be a standard operating procedure that in uh, being able to obtain, uh, obtain a, an arrest warrant for the homicide We'd be able to, you would have to get enough information in front of a judge that says there's, you know, reasonable cause to believe that this person has committed this crime of murder. Um, the fact that he posts the pictures, there's, we're well beyond the reasonable cause at that point. So you go the path of least resistance at then and get that warrant in hand, that arrest warrant in hand. 
uh, it, because that arrest warrant then does open up not just the investigative part of it, but also the apprehension part that uh, that comes later when uh, to affect uh, an arrest warrant. Uh, there are um, uh, if I have that warrant in my hand, it gives me the opportunity maybe to enter uh, an apartment, a house, a hotel room, uh, etc. So the the standard tactic would be as soon as I can. Uh, get a piece of paper in my hand that says a judge is saying, arrest this person and bring them to us, it opens up all the rest of the investigative and apprehension avenues to us. So as a result of that, the FBI was then able to trace his phone to a motel in Louisiana, about 100 miles north of Baton Rouge. The FBI then, so now this is Tuesday, okay? I, I want, you know, she's abducted either late Wednesday night, Thursday morning, we think Wednesday night. And now this is Tuesday, and the FBI moves in to arrest Hawley at this motel. Of course, he refuses to go. He's not going to make this easy. So there's now a shootout at the motel. Hawley, the suspect, is shot and killed. And an FBI agent is also wounded, has to go to the hospital. And the amazing thing is, Nicole is alive and safe. Shocking. That Can you imagine? I mean, bullets are flying everywhere. She's got to be so terrified besides everything she's been through the last five days. And she actually gets rescued in like a crazy Rambo Terminator style. Uh, it's uh, incredible uh, that uh, she uh, wasn't struck by uh, some sort of gunfire, um, including if uh, Holly knew that, okay, now this is the end. Um, and he'd already extracted, you know, uh, uh, this vengeance against her family that he wouldn't have shot her and she wasn't hit by stray gunfire though. It's just incredible that she survived that. It is. And so they were in the process of reuniting her with her family, trying to get her obviously a lot of help. Uh, she's been seriously traumatized and we don't know what kind of physical injuries and attacks that she may have sustained in the process of this violent five-day ordeal. What is also unknown is what happened. Like, why was the mother killed? You know, it's interesting that he allegedly, I mean, he's dead. I, I mean, he took Nicole, right? He kidnaps Nicole. But why did they have to go to her mother's house, drive almost two hours away to get to the mother's house to kill her? And I think the violent way in which that the mother was murdered leads me to believe that there was something very personal and very angry, right? He doesn't appear, he could have killed Nicole, he didn't do that, right? But he wanted to kill her mother. So I, I have a feeling it's just my guess that the motive sits somewhere in there. Uh, there are any number of possible uh, um, motives. You know, first, let's just set that line that 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 uh, the level of psychotic behavior, you know, that's involved in this. Right. Um, it could be that um, part of the reason that there's no longer a relationship between he and Nicole is because the mother intervened. Um, you know, that who knows? Um, but, you know, these are all so tragic, but there are cases, you know, where in a domestic violence type of a thing, a jilted uh, boyfriend or lover uh, will shoot and kill uh, the person that they now focus on has ruined their life or whatever. But to take her, you know, and then go to a relative's house and do what he did, there's more of like a plan there, you know, more of a a deviance uh, that gets involved in that, that I'm going to show you, this is, this is going to hurt you worse than being shot, you know, type of a thing. And this is what I'm going to do because you did me so wrong. I wouldn't be surprised, Anna, if we don't hear that, the, um, uh, that Louisiana isn't a spontaneous place, that once the, the, we've flipped this far and he's into it, that there may be other people, whether it's in Nicole's greater world or just other people that he feels have wronged him, that um, that there, there, this wasn't going to end uh, until the FBI or some other law enforcement uh, agency apprehended or shot and killed him as it ended. 
Right. And no matter what the motive, it, there's there's no excuse for this. You, you can't do this. But it, it, you know, people are always asking for the why. It's it's a form of trying to comprehend. It's just a, it's a human reaction of trying to comprehend something that's incomprehensible. Now, even though he made some statements on social media that he clearly wanted to kill police, authorities say that they do not currently see Hawley being tied to any kind of specific ideologies or groups or anything like that that may have somehow worked into this. I mean, look, I'm not going to use the word terrorism here, but he terrorized this family without question. Oh, absolutely. And it's we've seen this to a certain extent in other threshold cases where um, we people have put on social media uh, some type of connection or at least belief in an ideology, you know, of whether it's a terrorist organization or whatever it might be, but no direct nexus. They just kind of feel I'm in some sort of, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to right all the wrongs or I'm a jihadist or whatever it might be, but there's no other real connection. Um, there was a, 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 a case here in Los Angeles, not very long ago, you probably remember it where a police officer who had been terminated from the Los Angeles Police Department uh, went on a rampage. Um, and, you know, there was a I covered that case. I and, covered that case. And you remember yeah. his first target was the child of the person that he believed had done him wrong. You know, and that's a, uh, there, like I said, that's a whole nother level of uh, dangerous psychotic behavior at that point. Because then there's a plan. I'm going to make you suffer in a way that you made me suffer and I'm going to have you stay alive to watch it. That's a whole different, that's movie stuff at that right. point. Right. Do you find anything extra troubling about the fact that he went on social media as part of this crime spree? I think that actually fits into that psychosis that we're talking about. Cause I, I believe that in his mind or other people's minds like that, they think that they're communicating to the world. That, you know, now it's the spotlight is on me and everybody is watching what I'm doing and it's fueling, you know, this thing What they don't really understand is there's maybe a dozen people, you know, that are paying attention to what he's saying. And, you know, half of those or more are federal and state law enforcement, you know, that are tracking him down. So it ended up his false bravado, you know, the self aggrandizement was actually what led police to him in the first place. You know, it, it, it wasn't his statement, you know, him putting a, a stamp on it, you know, okay, world, here I am. It was okay, FBI, here I am. And uh, ended up with him being shot and killed. Well, there are so many things that are missing, so many details about what really happened that I hope that if information is released after a debrief with Nicole, if we get a good update, we will share that with everyone because I think we all really want to understand this crime a lot better. I can tell you too, I'll add into that, Anna, that uh, the FBI will be um, will uh, pour over every segment of this case because as we've discussed a couple of times now, this is a different echelon you know, of criminal and there's a profile in that. And they'll look for commonalities to other similar behaviors in an effort to try to direct resources when they have some common uh, you know, uh, initial clues at crime scenes as the type of person they're they're looking for. That whole behavioral science unit at the FBI, um, there'll be months and months into this case about every aspect, about you know every person that might have been contacted. It's uh, it's a fascinating science, and and also the fact that there was a police shootout and that the suspect was killed we can't lose sight of the fact that he also made a threat that he wanted to kill police officers. So I think that that entire shootout is going to have to be dissected to figure out who made what call and how, plus because you have a suspect that's dead and you have an FBI agent in the hospital who was shot. Yeah, not knowing more about it, um, I would. Um, the circumstances would certainly suggest that by the time they were in Louisiana at that motel, they felt very confident that Nicole had been abducted and wasn't complicit in the murder. Uh, had she been complicit in the murder, general police tactics would be, we just kind of wait for them to come out. You know, we would make sure because of his statements about shooting a police officer, we would do the best we could to control that entire environment. But if they believe they have a hostage, 
you know, that I think they knew that Nicole was a hostage at that point, it changes the tactics from in law enforcement. Now on to our second case. This is where a woman who was trying to start a new life was found killed and dismembered in a river bottom. On October 27th, Amy Ruby Legans was reported missing after her family said that they hadn't heard from her for six days. Cops initially identified 61-year-old Timothy Sullivan as a potential suspect, and here's why. Because when Ruby moved to Arizona from Illinois over the summer, again, this is all part of that fresh start, right? Everything's going to be better. She met Timothy Sullivan through a friend, and the two started dating. But during their relationship, Timothy Sullivan allegedly assaulted Ruby And it turns out that he had a violent criminal history of domestic violence, which we will detail in just a bit. So, again, most people are killed by people they know, right? Not saying automatically that that he's going to be a suspect, but he was certainly on the short list. And then what happened solidified his position to be moved up to suspect number one. Yeah, the, the standard operating procedure, every homicide investigation or missing person investigation actually is, you know, back in my day, years ago, it was you found the phone book, the personal phone book of the, of the missing person or the victim of a, uh, of a homicide. And 80% of the time, you were going to find the name of the person responsible or at least someone who was going to give you important information inside that book. Today, I imagine it's cell phone records. You know, yeah. I've replaced all that, but uh, it, it, it's the first step of trying to locate somebody or identify a suspect in a homicide. Well, police say that Timothy went to great lengths to cover up his crime and dispose of Ruby's body. But in doing so, he actually left a trail of evidence. So police initially contacted Sullivan, and they say that he was living with an ex-girlfriend in Scottsdale, Arizona. They interviewed him about a week before Ruby Legan's body was actually discovered. Sullivan allegedly told police that he had met Ruby before. Yeah, okay, they dated a little bit, but they really were not in a relationship. That's what he said. So, this is when the evidence starts coming out. Authorities say that they found a bottle of bleach, latex gloves, a scrub brush, bedding, and a duffel bag inside of Sullivan's car at that Scottsdale address where he was staying with his ex-girlfriend. Items in the car, as well as items found during a sweep of Sullivan's property, Plus, a search of his cell phone records led to the discovery of Ruby's body, according to investigators. Investigators searched the home with a search warrant. This was the Scottsdale home. And that's where they found something bizarre. They say the backyard area was covered in mulch and that there were burned pieces which were later identified as human hair, women's clothing, and a bracelet. Okay, how often do we see that, that the killers try to burn the bodies of their victims? We see this all the time. It's pretty common um, in some sort of, you know, aftermath of, oh my gosh, what just happened? Or I've done this. How am I going to hide the fact that I've done this? And then that usually ends up in some incredibly clumsy uh, or even multiple clumsy attempts to cover it up. So as a result of searching and mining his cell phone records and where he had been through his GPS, they located Ruby. So on November 17th, part of Ruby's body was found near River Bottom in Phoenix. Her body showed obvious signs of trauma, obviously. On November 25th, Sullivan was taken into police custody. And according to the records, Sullivan allegedly admitted to killing Ruby after they had an argument He said she was yelling at him and that he snapped. Okay, I find this interesting and here's why. Because ultimately he doesn't get charged with murder one. He gets charged with second degree murder. So, I I mean, are they buying this whole like fit of passion, snap thing? This always drives me crazy, honestly. It really does. There is a woman who is dead. Her body parts are scattered all over the place. She clearly died a hideous, violent death. How is this not murder one? It's, um, 
at, when the case arrives at the district attorney's office, the district attorney, you know, will uh, usually take a look at it and said, what is my most likely conviction? Um, and unfortunately, and who's to say, you know, right or wrong to it, but the district attorneys that I've worked with in the past would generally on homicide cases will generally charge what they would consider charge up and say, we can prove uh, second degree murder here which might be a heat of passion type of murder. Um, however, I don't, I'm an advocate for the victim here. I don't have the victim's side of the story other than the trauma and you know, the, the um, uh, uh, other forensic evidence that I might be able to, um, to uh, obtain. So uh, I'm going to file uh, a first-degree murder, and then we'll let this play out. You know, uh, because that's the only way at this point I can I, I can advocate for the victim. Is I agree file, with you. But again, uh, in any uh, district attorney is generally a political position, and um, there uh, I, I don't know specifically in Arizona or for that county what the filing criteria might be. Um, there may have been some sort of an arrangement that was worked out with the district attorney and the investigating officers at the time of the confession, you know, uh, but uh, I don't want to speculate too much on that, but I would agree with you. Uh, Anna. that it just seems a little bit out of place that based on the circumstances, you would take what was already in your hand versus filing the charge that actually advocates for the victim. Well, I think what I am willing to, to believe here is that, he cooperated and admitted, and if that's the case, that there was some kind of deal and could have also helped with the location of all of Ruby, I suppose that that's a negotiation that, that could have taken place. We don't know. We're just speculating here. So Sullivan went on to say uh, to investigators that he choked her to death, and then he left her body in her Chandler apartment for two days. This may be the negotiation, meaning he's telling them how it happened, where he did it, where she is, and maybe that's why it's a slightly lesser charge. So then he tells the cops that he wrapped her body in a tarp and then he buried her in the backyard there in Scottsdale, Arizona. But the idiot became worried. Yes, this is what he's worried about, right? He was so worried. Sullivan, that he allegedly exhumed the body, and then he decided he's going to chop up Ruby's body because that way it'll be easier to get rid of her in separate plastic bags inside trash cans throughout the area. So Ruby was chopped up and dispersed in multiple locations, not just what they found of Ruby in the bottom of the river. Ultimately, it was dental records that were used to identify Ruby's remains. Investigators say that Sullivan indicated that his actions were spontaneous and heinous in nature. Oh, isn't that lovely that he actually agreed that it was heinous? I, I, you know what it is? I, I just, it always gets to me at my core. I always feel that our justice system is always seems to be tilted so much more away from the victim, right? It's always a horrible process for the victim. Look, there is there can be no justice. We can't get Ruby back, but it just drives me crazy. That That's what bugs me to my core. Yeah, there's um, there seems to be an ebb and flow, right? There, there'll be some sort of uh, uh, political sweep through that would say uh, we're... Um, and I'm not advocating for one side or another as much as just observing and from my seat in a police car observing, there'll be a push towards um, uh, more restorative justice and restorative, uh, you know, um, types of uh, systems. Uh, and then there seems to be an ebb and flow where the restorative uh, almost always gets followed by a little bit of a spike in certain types of crimes. And then all of a sudden we'll get things like the victim's bill of rights. You know, and we're going to three strikes laws. And at any given time, uh, there doesn't ever seem to be an, a balance in the middle, at least in my 31 years of law enforcement, that uh, 
yes, sometimes absolutely restorative is the way that we should be approaching some of these things. But then there needs to be an, an accountability and a punitive aspect, you know, and murder would seem to always be one of those punitive things, you know, that, uh, um, and regardless of uh, most of the circumstances that there uh, is, um, we seem to be in an area now that uh, uh, it's almost like a rubber stamp process, and we have a dead person at the you know on the front side of that process. Well, um, here, but Eric, here's why I take such exception here, and why I'm I'm just at my core so angry at this Sullivan guy because he has a violent history against women. He nearly killed another woman, according to a former victim of his. And, and he was out on probation when he did this to Ruby. Okay. So that makes me very angry that this could have been avoidable. avoidable. Let's look at Timothy's background. So Susan Davidson of Phoenix, Arizona, told TV station KPNX that Sullivan tried to kill her in 2014. Now, she presented to the television station the police record, the photos that were taken at the hospital. She had massive bruises on her neck, her eye. She, she lost her teeth. It was a beating like none other. She survived. He punched her more than 20 times and choked her, resulting in that punctured eye. He took a plea deal. This is a man with an experience with plea deals. He took a plea deal for aggravated assault and was sentenced to two and a half years behind bars and four years of probation. Timothy was still on probation when he started dating Ruby. This is why I'm so angry. This right. is why I'm so angry. And... It could be part of the reason that the um, district attorney was at a second-degree murder because, again, not being familiar with the Arizona Penal Code, but generally speaking, if you commit a similar crime while you're on probation, uh, there are certain um, sentencing structures that are taken off the table, like probation is no longer on the table. And low-term, a lot of these cases will have uh, predeterminate sentencing. There's what's called a low-term, a mid-term, and a high-term. And if you're on probation and do it again, you lose the low term, you know, that so he, they know if they successfully prosecute him for second degree murder, whether it's a plea bargain or a jury trial, um, that he, the, he's going to be in jail for say 12 years, you know, um, now again, I'm not advocating for that, but I could, I understand that that might be part of the filing process that they know that he is going to be locked up for quite some time. So if I understand you correctly, that because of the circumstances, he will be in prison for so long that ultimately it could be equivalent to almost a murder one charge. Generally speaking, um, if you're on probation and you commit the same crime, uh, uh, the sentencing is much more harsh, uh, okay. you know, for any sort of a sentence for a similar type of type of a crime. Now, he committed a murder and, um, you know, it's. Um, there are advocates, the reason there are advocacy groups uh, uh, for these domestic violence types of issues is I saw those same pictures that you were describing and you were showing, and they go into a system, a, you know, a court system, and two years in probation, and generally the probation, not knowing, but generally probation would be like anger management classes, you know, type of a thing. And um uh, maybe some people, you know, they come through that process and they're just, they come out the other side and they're better folks for, for it. However, the risk of a man that, uh, number one, a man that would strike a woman, much less multiple times and, you know, break her uh, orbital socket and choke her to where there's a visit. Um, yeah, I'm thinking we're, uh, you know, uh, Anger management probably isn't, you know, too far. Yeah. I, you know but, what? I got no sympathy for this guy. Yeah. Timothy Sullivan has been charged with second degree murder, and I hope they lock him up for life and they throw away the key. I got no sympathy here for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm joining your club on that. It's, um, you know, I suppose we can look at it like he got another bite at the apple, and this is what he did as a result. And mm. so, uh, yeah, uh, I have zero sympathy here. Zero.
In our comments section today, we actually have an update on a murder that outraged so many of you. It's the murder of Fort Hood soldier Vanessa Guillen. The Army finally took action and has fired or suspended 14 people at Fort Hood as a result of an independent investigation into violence on that base, including murders, sexual assaults, and a rash of suicides. 25 soldiers assigned to Fort Hood have died due to suicide, homicide, or accidents, and including the bludgeoning death of soldier Vanessa Guillen. That is an awful lot of violence taking place on a military base, presumably with enormous security measures. Now, the case of Vanessa, in case you don't remember, she was missing for about two months before her remains were found. A fellow soldier was ultimately charged with her murder, and this is the part that upset the community, absolutely upset her mother, upset us all. In those two months, base officials stalled the investigation to the point that federal authorities had to get involved. They had a, there was a congresswoman who was protesting outside the base trying to reason with the military officials to help the local police solve this case. They stalled the investigation. The family says that there was a cover-up because Vanessa had confided in her family that she was being sexually harassed by her superiors, right? And that when she told other soldiers on the base they too had suffered sexual abuse at the hands of their superiors, yet nothing was done. So I guess you could say that this is finally a bit of cleaning house at Fort Hood. But what upsets me about this is that it really is too little, too late, because for two months that family was twisting, trying to get information, and they refused. Had, had the authorities on the base, at least cooperated early on. Look, sadly, Vanessa still would have been murdered. But the point is, she would have been found so much sooner, so much sooner if, if the military base officials had cooperated in this investigation. I, this one gets me so upset. Yeah, there's um, volumes and volumes of uh, uh, literature and classes that you can attend uh, that in law enforcement, we attend about culture, you know, the culture within an agency, the culture at a, at a base. Uh, and that culture is established by the people on the top. And there are the ones that are going to say, listen, we have rules and we expect you to meet the expectations that are in these rules. Everybody gets treated with dignity and respect, you know, uh, that we won't tolerate any sort of harassment. There'll be quick repercussions if you um, violate the expectations. Well, in a dysfunctional uh, culture, the people at the top either turn a blind eye to or just totally disregard the rule. And then as soon, the higher you go in the organizational chart that aren't you know, holding people accountable, specifically themselves, that just permeates then down through to the, 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 the person with the boots on the ground. Um, it happens in law enforcement. It happens in the military. It happens in corporate America. You know, that uh, once that culture is established, uh, number one, it can be incredibly difficult to penetrate, as we see here with the fort. But even what, think about all what we're le learning from local law enforcement. You know, part of the angst about local law enforcement is the, the police officers all seem to be on a very big, thick wall. And the public really doesn't know what's going on. And that whole transparency movement. Um, and part of that is sometimes, you know, there are protections in place, but other times it's the agency itself. I don't want you to see my dis dis uh, dysfunction because the larger the gap between the expectation, that's the safest place for everybody to be, and the application where the boots are on the ground, the larger that gap is, the more dangerous it is for everybody that's on that base or the more dangerous it is for everybody in that police department. Um, well, so this 20, is a, 25 uh, soldiers, homicide suicide accidents that is a lot of human life that is a lot of human life so i'm i am uh, i think it's the right thing to do is to clean house i hope that that's enough of a cleaning i don't know if 14 people on a massive military base is enough but it's a start it's a good reaction and i think some of you also 
agree because here are your comments. Aisha M. writes, sketchy place. You'd think it's safer on a base, but obviously not. Exactly. That's what Vanessa's family thought. Susan C., something is terribly wrong over there. Need to investigate more. I agree. Not done yet. And Joy A. writes, this is insane. Here's the other story. This one's crazy because we need one. Let's end on something. An upstate New York mayor, apparently the target of a sting operation, ends up throwing crack cocaine out of the car window in an effort to get rid of the evidence. Because if you throw it out, then you can get away with the crime. The mayor of Messina, New York, was arrested for allegedly throwing crack cocaine out of his car after failing to pull over during a traffic stop. Agents from an undercover operation in association with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Oh, they were watching this mayor. All right. Pulled over Timmy Courier's vehicle on suspicion of drug sales and possession. Cops say that they saw the mayor throwing out about a gram of crack from the passenger window. So they must have been coming up on the driver's side and he quick threw it out the other side. Haha, <laughs> They'll never find it. Yeah, he must have been under the influence when he came up with this plan. Timmy Courier. Here's the best part. Used to be the police chief of Messina for more than 20 years before being elected mayor in 2014 and then being reelected in 2018. The mayor of Messina, everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nothing I, we can say. <laughs> well, I think had he thought it through, it would have been, boy, am I glad to see you guys. I was just bringing this down to the police station to turn it in because I found it someplace, but... He, he wasn't quite that quick to come up with it, but um, well, that's clever, Eric. But I wouldn't have bought that one either. <laughs> uh, we've actually I've run into that. Made a traffic stop where somebody had um, narcotics in the car, and when I walked up to the window, they said I was just on my way down to the police station to turn this in. Wow, uh, what a what a good doobie! <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm going to take you and the narcotics to the police station with me. <laughs> there you go. Hard. I'll give you a ride. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Diane T. writes, every person with high rank should be drug tested periodically. I bet there's a lot more. I think that's probably true. And then Kim L. writes, Merry Christmas, Timmy. Yeah, Merry Christmas indeed. And with that, that is the end of this episode. Eric, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very it's, much for having me. It's always, I, I love it when you tell us your personal stories. I really do. I really That helps, I think, understand situations and, and just makes it, you know, that much more human. So thank you for that. Where can people find you uh, on social media or your website? Uh, thank you. Uh, the campussafetygroup.org. Um, we have recently restructured into a nonprofit organization and uh, we're about to roll out a pretty robust uh, marketing campaign to help schools be more safe. Excellent. Excellent. I wish you a very safe and happy holiday season. Uh, you can find me all um, on social media at Anna G News, Anna with one N. And um, I love to hear your comments. I can't wait to hear your comments on today's episode. As always, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course on YouTube. And you can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. It's a great crime family, as I like to say. We are almost 4.2 million strong. And I just love this community of people. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.